0: Welcome to the Broken Pie Chart Podcast, episode 117. I'm your host, Eric Moore. This week, we're going to be asking, are we in a stock market bubble? Actually, better yet, how do you spot bubbles? What are some of the characteristics of a bubble? We say a bubble, we're thinking about where prices have have reached the level, you know, pandemonium, excitement, all those types of things. A bubble means... You know, the prices are so high that when the, the bubble gets uh, pinpricked, it sort of, you know, causes a, a crash or leads to a crash. So what are some of the things historically we can view? Um, there's some really famous ones. What are the phases of kind of getting to a bubble? And whether you look at, I'll talk about the tulip bubble or the internet bubble or, you know, the housing bubble, all of those sort of look the same. They all sort of look the same. And I know recently we've been hearing on, you know, whether it be CNBC or Bloomberg, uh, the quote, markets can stay irrational longer than you can stay solvent. That's actually by John Maynard Keynes. Uh, If Keynes sounds familiar, probably, you've probably heard of him in some economics class or at least heard it talked about. Uh, Keynes is the, uh, or Keynesian, Keynesian, yeah, Keynesian, the, economic theory has, you know, the idea that government should be more involved and do a lot of fiscal stimulus and, you know, I'm oversimplifying it. The other one you've been hearing, and I'll probably botch this because I, I just heard it the other day on, on uh, I think it was CNBC, somebody said, you know, history doesn't necessarily repeat itself, but it often rhymes. Uh, I think that was by, yeah, I think it was by Mark Twain. I hope I'm not Getting that wrong, I think I'm I'm pretty sure that uh, that was Mark Twain. But you know the reason why this is coming up is anytime you've got a market, whether it be Bitcoin or Ethereum, and we'll talk about Bitcoin and Ethereum because they've had a couple instances where people thought the bubble was popped and and they've come back. Um, they just recently sold off. But you know when you think about a bubble, and and let me be clear, if you know, it's really difficult to, to pick a bubble, and it's even harder to make money, even if you're correct. And the reason why that is, is you might be correct, but your timing might be off. And so you've got to get multiple things right to actually pick one of these. One of the more recent examples was 2008. And I can't believe when I say more recent, 2008, it's now 13 years ago. But in 2008, many might remember you had the housing bubble. And But here's the thing. I mean, housing really started to, uh, to crash in 2008, 2009, and it wasn't necessarily the first part of 2008. But I got to be honest with you. A lot of people bet against housing, whether it be shorting home builders or, uh, you know, you saw the movie, uh, The Big Short, where the character, uh, well, Michael, Michael Burry was the, the actual person. Uh, who was it? Oh, God, I am i can't remember the guy's name. Uh, Christian Bale was the actor who played Michael Burry. And even in that movie, you might remember that you know he was he used something called credit to swaps, which basically he would make money if the thing he was betting against failed. And I did an episode going over the big short and explaining credit-to-fault swaps. So I'll link to that episode uh, if you want to. It's kind of a nice companion piece if, you, if you've watched the Big Short, and you're like, I don't even know what they're talking about. Or if you haven't, and you want sort of you want to watch it and then get a little better understanding about what credit default swaps are, I'll put that in the, in the link. But in there, you know, he he bought these credit default swaps, and basically, when you buy a credit default swap, it pays out some amount uh, if the thing you're betting against fails, and and how bad it fails. And the recovery rates and a number of other things depend on how much money uh, that person makes. But in his case, uh, he bought these credit default swaps, and he was actually carrying paying interest on those. uh, Because sort of you pay, well, not really interest. You pay the premiums. Okay, it's kind of like how you pay your car insurance premium, right? Anyway, listen to the episode. I won't get in depth uh, on it here. I won't do it justice trying to do it in a few minutes. But he he owed the premiums on these, and he's he's holding these. And I remember in the movie, the way they portrayed it is, his investors started to get a little disgruntled. Uh, one because he bet so much, you know, took so much of this fund he was managing, and, and bet against housing. But two, that you know the positions, the way they were marking, they were losing money first. And so he was very early on housing, and eventually, of course, um, you know if you want to hit pause and fast forward ten seconds. Yeah, he was right. He made a lot of money. Uh, but, but for a while, his, his timing was a little bit too early. And that really gets back to the, the first quote I, I mentioned, and that's markets can stay irrational longer than you can stay solvent. And it's the idea that even though something is ir- irrational, doesn't necessarily mean that uh, it's not going to get more irrational. OK? And the, the term irrational exuberance, you might hear that term thrown about. That was Alan Greenspan. I think that was the mid '90s, where Greenspan was giving a speech, and he said something to the effect that markets have there's an irrational exuberance that's taken over the markets, meaning you know prices are feeding on one day to the next, feeding on each other. Markets can only go higher. Um, there's also a lot of fear of missing out or FOMO. And that's that's one of the, the tells that I'll sort of get to. Um, sometimes they can tell you whether you're in a bubble or not. But when we think about a bubble and what really, what are the fat, you know, I, I'll call it the classic sort of stages of a bubble. And if you think about this, um, and and you can just Google classic uh, stages of bubbles, um, you can find a number of these charts. The one I pulled up is there's really four stages. There's the stealth phase, the awareness phase, the mania phase, and the blow-off phase. And in the stealth phase, it's you know you're you're not seeing crazy price movement yet. Typically, that's smart money. Um, you know, a little bit of investing, a little bit of interest, but it's it's really more the smart money. And by the way, you know, I'll just say a lot of times these bubbles. I mean, not all bubbles are. You know, companies that were never going to make money ever or, or something like that. A lot of times, they're, they're good foundational ideas. Um, you know, they're, they're good fundamental ideas with sound research behind them. But then they start to get a little bit crazy as, as things go on. And so you, you have the stealth phase, smart money, the awareness phase. And typically, that's a lot of institutional investors. So institutional investors are professionals um, investment banks, uh, you know, people who are doing this for a living, and that's the awareness phase. And typically, within that phase, you'll see kind of the first pullback. So at this point, you know, things are starting to take off in price. If you can imagine, you know, a, a chart. The chart's not parabolic when it goes to the, the sky yet. Um, and typically, you see some sort of a, a sell-off or retracement in that phase. And people refer to that as a bear trap. And why is it a bear trap? It means people say, "Hey, this is too high. I'm going to bet against it," and it pulls back. And maybe they bet against it more. They they initiate you know new short positions, and it's a trap because really it was just a quick sell off, and then it regains steam and momentum. And from there, you know, you get into the mania phase, and the mania phase. Is typically where you start to see some media attention, and you'll see, you know, different types of, um, and, and it might not even, you know, certainly financial. Like you'll see it on CNBC, you'll see it in Bloomberg, but you start to see, um, as the the price goes, you know, starts to really go up, you'll start to see non financial news outlets start to cover it, and I'll, I'll talk about that. I was going to say remind me of. <laughs> talk about rough rice futures, but uh, you're not in the room with me. So I'll just have to remind myself. But you get this media attention. Um, by the way, this is where the public comes in during the mania phase. So you have the smart money, institutionals, professionals, and then the public comes in. And really, it's, it's media attention, enthusiasm, greed, fear of missing out, delusion, and then typically at the very, very top, it's this idea of a new paradigm. And what does a new paradigm mean? Well, okay. So in the housing crisis, right, or before housing went bust, it was the idea that housing goes will go up forever. There's a limited supply. Uh, if you don't buy now, you'll never buy a house. There was, you know, th- this is the way it's going to be. And, you know, in the the dot-com era, there was this whole thing about earnings don't matter anymore in companies. I don't know if anyone who was in the market at the time, they actually started to come out with new metrics. Uh, It was like mouse clicks. How many times did your page get clicked? Didn't matter if they were losing tons and tons of money. In fact, there were some companies, when you looked at it, the more they sold, the worse it would get for them. Like They'd be better off not selling more because every sale they made, they lost money. So it's, it's this new paradigm, all right? And typically here, too, is, well, you know what? I'll talk about some of the tells now. Um, so the, the new paradigm is really the, the top, top, top. And again, you don't know, you know, that that's going to be the new paradigm until after the fact. So I just want to be clear. Like, it's, it's difficult to, to really spot these. And remember, you've got to be right, and you've got to be right- at the right time because uh, if you bet against something and that goes against you you wind up losing a lot of money so the new paradigm is is uh, there's a couple towels and I said to remind me about the the rough rice futures so you can't see a chart of, of rice futures but it was probably oh when was this maybe 2012 2011 I'd have to I'd have to look it up and what happened was, you actually had um, so rough rice futures are a futures contract that trades on the futures exchange. It's based upon the the price of rice, and if you're a rice farmer and you wanted to, you know, sell a forward contract, you know, it's it's May right now. I want to sell my rice in November. I know nothing about the rice market, by the way. Um, you know, and, and prices are really high, you, you could do that. Or somebody who needed to buy rice might say, well, I think the price is good here. I want to lock in this price. But people can speculate with futures as well. And you saw the new paradigm reached in rice futures. And it went up and up and up. It was an absolute rocket ship. And I remember you started to see things on the news about the price of rice. I remember seeing a news story that people were hoarding rice you know, think about what they did with, more recently with toilet paper or hand sanitizer. So they would show a Costco or a supermarket and where the rice was, there were just, you know, empty shelves where the rice back should have been. And I remember, I, I think I was at my getting a, you know, a, a teeth cleaning at my dentist and they have a TV and you, and they just had it on, uh, I don't know, what, it, like NBC and it was during the day and it was, uh, The two women who used to drink wine, Kathy Lee Gifford and I forget who the other person was, but it was the, I think it was the Today Show. And so not where you would go to get your financial news, right? And all of a sudden, they show a chart of rough rights futures. Now, I got to tell you, you could watch CNBC for 20 years and you wouldn't see a chart shown on TV, you know, a graph of rough rights futures. That contract is so thin, meaning there's so little volume that trades on that. At least, you know, last time I looked at it was during this time period. But Kathy Lee Gifford is actually doing a story, and she's talking about how, you know, who knows how high this could be. People are running out. If you don't have rice, you might not get it for a while. If you can find some, you know, you better, better grab some, right? And literally, that was the top, that was the highest price. And you know, there's um, what happens typically is, so people who are buying, let's just forget about rough rice, anything, when they're buying that the enthusiasm, the greed, delusion, fear of missing out, is the new paradigm, and then you see typically a sell-off. And the sell-off isn't the, the final sell-off, and there's a lot of denial in that portion. So you start to see a sell-off, prices are pulling back, you probably bought higher, and you say, I can't possibly go down, this is not... It doesn't even make any sense, right? And, and then there's a lot of people who come down. Remember, we talked about the bear trap. There's a bull trap here where people might come in and buy thinking, oh, I'm going to get it at a discount. Price goes back, not reaching the old high, uh, but starts to, to come back up a little bit. And people say, well, that's a return to normal. Normal being the new paradigm, the crazy, the craziness, right? And typically, as bubbles burst, it doesn't return to normal. Price starts to retrace, come down. And you get sort of the, the fear comes down more. Capitulation comes down even more. Despair. I'm really at the despair phase where people stop opening their statements and just, you know, they they probably sell sell anything they had at those prices. Um, you know, I think it was Jack Schwager in one of his books, one of the, in the interviews, they, uh, they talked about the hope, wish, and pray. If you don't have a strategy, meaning you hope price goes up, you wish you would have sold it higher, and then at some point you find religion, you pray, pray price somehow gets back to, to where you bought it. But that's the blow-off phase. And so it doesn't matter which bubble that you look at. They all sort of look the same. One of the more famous ones is the tulip bubble, 1634 to 1637. And these were Gouda tulip bulbs in uh, the Netherlands. And so these things went from, I guess they're probably, back then they were Dutch guilders, was the currency. But I think they went from something like, you know, a dollar a bulb or a guild, sorry, a gilder a bulb to like 60 guilders a bulb. And it was the same looking chart. Just went up, up, up. Went parabolic and then crashed. And actually went lower than than it used to. It actually started out. And there's famous stories. You can Google uh, the tulip bulb mania. Uh, there's it, it's probably the most famous one. And there's stories, although people have written afterwards that said maybe they weren't true. That people were you know selling their houses to. Buy tulip bulbs. Literally, it's a bulb. You put it in the ground, and it grows a tulip. And there were these, you know, sort of special tulips. But the South Seeds bubble of 1729—that was sort of a, a shipping company that was supposed to. I think that wound up being a fraud. Um, more recently, the the dot com bubble. So the Nasdaq, starting you know maybe 94, 95. Um, and crested in March, I think it was March of 2000. Uh, but the chart looks the same, whether it's a Tula bubble or the NASDAQ bubble. And I think, you know, with the NASDAQ bubble, it probably took another 13, 15 years to get back, maybe more, 15, 16 years to get back to the higher, the, the previous highs. Um, and, you know, in the dot com bubble, a lot of things that we saw, and I was in the markets during this time. So analysts stopped worrying about earnings. Uh, it was a new paradigm. We're going to measure page views, as I said, instead of, uh, instead of earnings. Really no earnings for a lot of these companies, but high valuations. You had FOMO, fear of missing out, a rush to buy. You had retail investors, so that's non-institutional investors. They're trying to buy shares using credit cards. Uh, I remember running a, a, a trading team. And people would call, you know, the traders. This is before, well, I guess we sort of had internet training, but really it was more people saw the call and trade, and and they would start giving one of the traders their credit card number, and you can't buy stock on credit card, by the way. Um, but you'd see people take home equity loans and use that to purchase shares. You'd see people sending in those cash advance checks, and people betting against it were continually. Punish so short sellers, people betting against it. This is also where uh, Pets.com was really one of the tells. So this is a company went public in early 2000. I think they were bankrupt less than a year later. But they spent 17 million on advertising in the second quarter of I think it was 2000. Their revenue was only 8.8 million, and. By the way, if you go to Pets.com, I think it's either Petsmart or somebody else, it will take you to their site. Um, this was not Petsmart. This was, uh, Pets.com was a, a, a separate company that went public. They had a sock puppet and they, I think they spent like a million dollars advertising at the Super Bowl. Um, it, it's interesting though, because you might say like, hey, don't we buy a pet food, like cat food and dog food online? Yeah, that's true. And so there's been papers and articles written about it, but you know some people look at the amount of debt they had, um, but it, they might have been a little too early. There was no cloud computing. They had one location, I think, in outside San Francisco. I remember in their S one filing, which is what a company files when they go public. You know, one of the risks to the business was I think there was an earthquake. Um, so distribution networks. I mean, none of that stuff was really. Um, you know, really uh, like it is today. And I think I mentioned, by the way, PetSmart, I think it was PetSmart, later purchased pets.com, the, the URL, at a bankruptcy auction. But that was definitely one of the, the tells. You know, the other tell, too, I remember I had, a, I think I was going to the mailbox and, and my brokerage statement came in, in March of 2000. And the guy was my mailman at the time. It was like oh you know uh, just let you know I'm this is my last week and I said oh you, you what are you doing and he said well I'm quitting to become a I'm gonna day trade internet stocks um, and literally a week later the market started to crash so uh, sometimes you just sort of see those tells another tell by the way and you know with the housing crisis you could you could go back and you could see that the quality of, of mortgages that were being written or the people who were getting mortgages, the credit quality was very low. Um, but you also talk to people. Um, I think the the basis, there's a scene in uh, in the big short and the basis for that, I heard uh, the woman who's a, I can't remember her name, but she was on Barry Ridholtz's podcast and she was a housing analyst and, and she, she had started to put out some research about how housing was you know, really getting out of hand. And one of her tells was her and her husband, I think, I, I think I'm remembering the story, we're at Miami Beach and the guy who, you know, comes over with the umbrella and puts it in the stand. Um, and, you know, you tip the guy and, um, you know, I guess he was saying he owned like five or six different properties and they were all mortgaged. And she was like, yeah, that's that's uh, that's, that's not going to be good. They actually used a different example in the Big Short. Uh, they didn't use the guy with the umbrella, but you know Hollywood does take a little license with, their, uh, with how they tell stories, right? But the, the other tell, certainly, was when you had people who never invested before or never even had a, an inkling of going into a certain market, and those people started to come out of the woodwork. And I remember after Katrina oil futures had spiked, you know, it was like $150 a barrel. You know, right now it's like $60 a barrel. And I had a, a few people who weren't in the markets, and they contacted me and they said, hey, you know, how how would I buy oil? Can I buy like a barrel of oil? Can I buy, how do I buy oil futures? And, you know, a couple of weeks later, you start to see oil come back. Uh, the refineries came back online, and um, certainly that oil has not been that price uh, since, and that was 2008. And I I do wonder right now with uh, so it brings us to Bitcoin and Ethereum. We know that Ethereum has quadrupled since I think the end of last year. Uh, Bitcoin at one point had gone above sixty thousand. Now let me be clear: I have no idea. Uh, where Bitcoin's going to go. Uh, Jay and I did a, an episode, a couple episodes ago, where we asked the question, how much Bitcoin or Ethereum should you have in your portfolio? I think we arrived at, you know, if you were going to, maybe a half a percent, uh, something like that. And part of the reason why we said that was those are so volatile. You saw in the last week, I think Bitcoin was, you know, off 30% in one day or two days, right? So those are very volatile you know, instruments, for sure. Um, but I will say, you know, the, the case that it's uh, a lot of these cryptocurrencies are bubbles is that you do have some people coming on, off the sidelines and trying to figure out, hey, you know, my friends have made money. Um, I have a fear of missing out. They don't say that, but that's, and I'm going to get involved in this market. And typically, when you see that type of money come in, That's uh, you know a lot of times that can be at a top. Now, the argument against this again, I have no idea. Um, But the argument against these being a bubble is that, you know, Bitcoin and I'll just use Bitcoin as an example. um, It's had sell-offs. I mean, it it sold off from twenty thousand back down to what was it six thousand or something like that. And then somebody said on CNBC, it's still here. So. It's very volatile. Um, you could have made the argument that it was a bubble back in you know November of 2017 when it reached 20,000 and had the classic bubble chart. Um, so you know that's the thing. These are, you know, we'll, you'll know it was in a bubble when it was in a bubble. Um, same thing with Tesla. I think a lot of people have been betting against Tesla and lost a lot of money, being short Tesla. Uh, does that mean Tesla's going to five thousand or is going to five? You know again, um, those who listen to the podcast know I really encourage people just invest in in broad markets and be hedged and you know I think your life's going to be a lot easier, a lot more a lot more sanity for you. Um, but as we look at these things and we look at markets today, we look at housing, we look at Bitcoin and Ethereum, you look at all sorts of assets just just start to know, I think it was constructive. At least, you know, I've had some questions about it. You know, how do you spot these bubbles? I think it's kind of constructive to just understand the different phases. And so you can you can just think about, you know, where we are in these, in these phases. And, again, the other thing is I go back to John Maynard Keynes uh, who says, you know, look, markets can stay irrational longer than you can stay solvent. So even if you're right on something, it means you could lose – a ton trying to bet against it if your timing is off. You've got to get it right. And, you know, I know there's there's people even right now who uh, look at more recently GameStop, 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 right? GameStop, you know, goes up to $300, $400, comes back down. I think it was around, you know, 75 and people are betting against it. And what does it do? It goes back up. No clue where GameStop is going. In fact, I've, I've honestly stopped following it um, once the once the craziness was over. And we did a couple episodes of that where we talked about um, you know that craze. So, no, what I would take away from this podcast is this: number one is um, you know remember that quote I just I, I've repeated a few times, um, but just understand that think about. What you're seeing. Think about the different phases of those, um, those types of markets when you get into manias. And the other part of it too is, you know, think about if you were going to, you know, how difficult it is to try and call tops and bottoms on these. It's very, very difficult. Professionals, um, you know, we don't. They're not great at it either. And the other thing too, I would say is, you know, they're t- tough to spot ahead of time. Um, but the other part of this too, is that how many times have you listened to quote unquote experts go on CNBC or or Bloomberg and, you know, they tell you the market's going to crash or the markets, you know, this is going up, this is going down. You know, how many times they're wrong? Um, they're wrong all the time. And in fact, if you listened just on the overall market, if you listened to every one of the, uh, you know, the pundits who went on and said, you know, this is going to be the crash to end all crashes. We're going to go down more than, and, and guess what? People said that in 2009, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. Every year they say that. And why do they say that? It's a good way to get on TV, and it's a good way to um, to get mouse clicks. If I title the podcast, um, the next crash Is will start dot, dot, dot. I'll bet you a lot of people would tune in. Uh, it's not going to help you at all, though. So that's why, again, broad markets, be hedged, uh, be buffered, use things like that, and uh, hopefully put your mind a little more ease. All right, folks, uh, that's going to be it for this week. Uh, Remember, don't waste time reviewing and starring. You can actually, you know, you can star it. Give me like five stars on if you know how to do that. If not, ask someone. If you're not going to give it five stars, don't ask anybody and don't do it. I don't know. Um, But really just share it, Share these if you think someone else will uh, will benefit from it, and let me know. Um, as I said, a lot of times what's happening is people have uh, this one was a, a listener question. I said, "Hey, can you cover bubbles? Like, how to what the the attributes or the stages of bubbles are?" And I said, "Sure, I can do that. That's an easy one to do." So um, keep the questions coming, keep the suggestions for episodes coming, and we'll see you next week.